I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17, and we'll continue our series on the life of Abraham. Uh, if you do not have your Bible with you this morning, I invite you to take one of the Bibles that you'll find there around you and turn to page 11 and 12, 11 and 12, and you'll find our passage there. Uh, Genesis chapter 17. Um, I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 14, and then we'll skip ahead to the latter part of the chapter and read the concluding verses. So Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight years old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And skip down to verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray, okay? God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this opportunity that we've had this morning already to gather and to sing and to give you praise and to pray together and to give offerings to you for your glory and for the advance of your kingdom. And Father, as we turn to your word now, we quiet ourselves before you and we pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom and help, that you would speak to us, and we pray that we would receive your word in faith. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, the name of our church is Crawford Avenue Baptist 
church. So what does it mean to be a Baptist church? Well, one of the theological distinctives of a Baptist church is that we believe that only Christians should be baptized, that baptism is reserved for Christians. And that seems simple enough. But there are a number of brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow Christians, who disagree with us on this point. There are some other brothers and sisters in Christ who would agree that Christians should be baptized. In fact, I would say that it's fair to say that basically all Christians agree on that point. But they would disagree in saying, in this regard, they would say that not only should believers, should Christians be baptized, but they would also say that the infants of believing parents should be baptized as well. And so on this point, we disagree. And really, most of the disagreement has to do with uh, circumcision and the relationship of circumcision to New Testament baptism. A lot of the, the disagreement has to do with the passage that I just read for you here in Genesis chapter 17. Now, this morning, what I want to say as, as we talk about this subject is that for those who are Bible-believing Christians who disagree with us on this point and who baptized infants, uh, there is much that we agree on, okay? So with those uh, Bible-believing Christians who baptize infants, let me just say that we agree on the things that are most important that the Bible teaches, such as what we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about sin and about um, Jesus and about how we can have eternal life through faith in Jesus. So we agree on the main things, the most important things, and there is a lot of love and a lot of unity and a lot of agreement, and we praise God for that. But there is a different understanding of baptism. And so what I want us to do this morning as we look at Genesis chapter 17 is I want us to trace the theme of circumcision in Genesis chapter 17 and then follow it through the rest of the Old Testament and ultimately see how it is fulfilled in Christ. And as we do that, I want to explain to you why we as a church do not practice infant baptism. Now, if you're with us this morning and you are not a Christian, let me admit right up front that this is more of a family discussion among Christians, okay? And so uh, I am so glad that you are here. And what I hope to do this morning a little bit is to pull back the curtain and let you see a little bit of maybe a family squabble and see how Christians who love the Lord and are trying to be faithful to the Scriptures both love each other and also seek to be faithful to what they believe the Scriptures teach. In doing so, I will say this as well, though. I hope that in the process you learn a lot about the good news of Jesus Christ. Because after all, baptism is intended to be a picture of the gospel. It's intended to be a picture of the good news of God's grace shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, then I hope that this message this morning will help you and understanding more the significance of baptism in the Christian's life and why um, this matter is important. That although it may not be the most important thing we believe as Christians, it is an important matter that we believe as Christians. What we believe about baptism and has some very practical implications for our lives. And so I hope that you will see that. 
So as we approach Genesis chapter 17 this morning, I want us to follow uh, this outline. We will consider, first of all, circumcision and God's covenant with Abraham. Circumcision and God's covenant with Abraham. Secondly, circumcision fulfilled in Christ. Circumcision fulfilled in Christ. And then we will consider a few practical implications. A few practical implications. So first of all, circumcision and God's covenant with Abraham. Now, first of all, let's define circumcision. What is circumcision? Um, well, circumcision is the removal of the foreskin of a man's reproductive organ. That's what circumcision is. Okay. Now, there were many uh, neighbors of Israel who actually practiced circumcision at this time. So we see this here in Genesis chapter 17. This is not actually the first occasion of circumcision in the history of the world. Uh, some of Israel's neighbors practiced circumcision, but they did so for different reasons. It might be part of a marriage uh, rite or a fertility rite, or there were different reasons why the neighboring nations practiced circumcision. But it was unique to Israel in this regard, that circumcision was directly tied to God's promises of redemption and salvation through the covenant that he made with Abraham. Okay, so that's what we see happening here in Genesis chapter 17. Israel practiced circumcision because it was a sign, it was a symbol that connected them to the promise that God had made with Abraham to bring redemption and salvation to the world. So you notice there, I read these verses, verses 9 through 14. In these verses we see that uh, God says to Abraham, verse 9, uh, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring throughout their generations. This is my covenant. Uh, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And then he goes on to explain that even further, that the, the children are to be circumcised. These, the, the young boys at eight days of age, they are to be circumcised. And even the servants in the house and so forth, the foreigners that are with them, all of them are to be circumcised as a sign of their connection to the covenant that God has made with Abraham to bring salvation and redemption to the world. Now, what is it specifically, though, that this circumcision signifies? What does it symbolize in God's covenant with Abraham? Well, let's look at the passage and, and we'll see this. Um, consider this. This is the context of the passage. Abraham at this time is 99 years old, okay? Now, it has been almost 25 years since God originally gave Abraham the promise that he and his wife Sarah would have a child. Now, of course, through Hagar, they had Ishmael, but as far as Abraham and Sarah themselves, they have no biological son at this time. And so, so the promise is yet to be fulfilled, okay? The promise still goes unfulfilled. And we read here in chapter 17, verse 1, this is what we read, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. Now notice what's happening here. God initially, when he appears to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, he is demanding Abraham's faithfulness to the covenant. He says, walk before me and be blameless. And then God promises that he will fulfill his promises to Abraham. So he calls him to faithfulness to, to the covenant. And then he says that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So this is the promise. Okay. Now we have seen over the last several weeks different times where Abraham and Sarah have stumbled in their faith. 
But here, in contrast to that, we see a wonderful example of Abraham's faith. Notice here that although the promise has not been fulfilled in 25 years, and Abraham is 99 years old, Abraham still receives the promise by faith. Now, now you could imagine that Abraham at this time in his life might have been tempted to say when God comes to him again at 99 years old and says, Abraham, I'm going to fulfill this promise to you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bring redemption and salvation to the world through you. Abraham might have been tempted to say, you know, God, I've heard that before. You, you, You said that 25 years ago, and I've been waiting all this time, and I'm just, I'm exhausted I'm frustrated. I'm tired of getting my hopes up again and again and again and again and being disappointed. And in fact, at 99 years old, I can think of a lot of things I would rather do than be circumcised. Right? Now, this could have been Abraham's response. But it's not. God comes to Abraham And God says, I'm going to fulfill this promise in your life, Abraham. And how do we see Abraham respond in verse 3? Then Abraham fell on his face. This is obviously an act of submission. It's an act of faith. It's an act of obedience. So what do we see here? We see that once again, Abraham is confronted with the promises of God. And Abraham believes. He believes God's promise And he submits to God's way. Now shortly after this, God then commands Abraham to be circumcised. Which seems to suggest that God's intention is circumcision. Is that circumcision would be a sign, a symbol of a heart that is marked by devotion to God. Submission to God. Humility before God. Faith in God and in His promises. Now, this mark then was not only to be applied to Abraham, but all his descendants, including his infant children, sons, servants, so forth. Now, were all of their hearts, and this is important, were all of their hearts submitted to God? Well, no, they were not. But the mark of circumcision was given in hopes that one day their hearts would be submitted to God. In hopes that one day they would come to believe in the promise. Now, this moral, spiritual dimension of circumcision, I think is, is evident here by what we see laid out. But it's, it's even more explicitly stated later on when we come to Moses. So in Deuteronomy chapter 10... Moses is speaking to the people of Israel, and in Deuteronomy, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, this is Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, if you want to look at these passages later, Deuteronomy 10, 12 to 13, and this is what Moses says to the people of Israel, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Then he goes on to say, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. So so what is Moses, what, what is he saying about circumcision there? What is circumcision intended to symbolize, to signify? 
It is intended to symbolize a circumcision of the heart. It it means that that one's heart is given over to the Lord, that they fear the Lord, that they walk in His ways, that they love Him, that they serve Him, and so forth. So this this is what it was intended to symbolize and signify. Now, of course, Israel, as we follow this through the rest of the Old Testament, Israel often failed to submit to God and be devoted to His ways. And so what we see in the history of Old Testament Israel is that there is the physical act of circumcision. They continue to circumcise their children and their descendants just as the Lord has told them to do so. But oftentimes, there is not the spiritual circumcision that is present, a transformation of the heart. However, although the people of Israel wander from the Lord, their hearts are not devoted to Him, God promises that there will come a day when He will circumcise the hearts of all His people. So that the physical act of circumcision in the Old Testament would become a reality in all the hearts of His people. Moses actually says that this day would come. So in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 6 and 8, Moses says to the people, Deuteronomy 30, 6 and 8, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep His commandments that I command you today. And now, this is what we see throughout the Old Testament, that this promise then is repeated over and over and over again. Now, it may be the, the, the prophets and the biblical authors may use different language to articulate this promise, but it's the, it's the same promise. It's the promise of a circumcised heart, that God will circumcise the hearts of all his people. So, for example, there's many examples we could give, but here's a good one. Jeremiah and Ezekiel. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel both look forward to the day when the Lord will grant his people a new heart and a new spirit. The prophet Ezekiel says it this way. I will give you, this is the Lord speaking through Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh And I will give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's the same promise. It's the promise of a circumcised heart, a new heart, given the spirit of God so that you walk in devotion to God and obedience to God and you believe God's promises. So in God's covenant with Abraham, circumcision was practiced in the hopes that, and we're specifically as it relates to the infant children, in the hopes that one day they would devote themselves to the Lord and trust Him and believe in His promises. And it was practiced in the hope that one day God would fulfill His new covenant promise to give his, all of His people a new heart, to circumcise the hearts of all His people. Okay, So this is the practice of circumcision in God's covenant with Abraham. Now, Let's consider our second point. Circumcision fulfilled in Christ. Circumcision fulfilled in Christ. So, Abraham and his descendants circumcised their infant children in the hopes that one day their hearts would be circumcised and devoted to the Lord. Now, the New Testament authors reveal how then circumcision is fulfilled in the redemptive work of Christ. 
And there is one passage in particular in the New Testament where we find biblical authors speaking of both circumcision and baptism in the same passage. We actually read it earlier this morning. I want you to turn there. It's in Colossians, okay? So Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and if you're using one of the black Bibles, it's on page 984, 984. And because we we see in these verses that the author is speaking, and this is the Apostle Paul, the author is speaking of circumcision and baptism in the same passage, it's very important for us to understand this passage to understand the relationship between circumcision and baptism. So, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. Verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, Paul here is writing, and in this passage, in these two verses, he speaks both of circumcision and baptism. So in verse 11, you see there, he speaks of circumcision three times. In him you are also circumcised, there's once, with a circumcision, twice, made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision, there it is a third time, the circumcision of Christ. And then in verse 12, he speaks of baptism once, having been buried with him in baptism. Now, Those who practice infant baptism would say, here it is, right? Like, one-to-one relationship, circumcision, baptism. So, in the Old Testament, Abraham and his descendants, they baptized their infant children. And so, in the New Testament, baptism replaces circumcision, and we should baptize our infant children, Okay, And so in this sense, they would argue that baptism is the fulfillment of Old Testament circumcision. But I want us to look at this a little more closely. Notice in chapter 2, verse 11, Paul here, he, he does speak of circumcision, but he is speaking of a very specific circumcision. It is, chapter 2, verse 11, the circumcision, the latter part of that verse, the circumcision of Christ. Now, what is the circumcision of Christ? Well, we know from what Paul says here, he makes this very clear that he is not speaking in contrast to the circumcision that was performed in the Old Testament and the Abrahamic covenant. It is not a physical circumcision that he's speaking of. The circumcision of Christ is a spiritual circumcision. He says there in chapter 2, verse 11, in him, that is in Christ, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So he's obviously contrasting this to the Old Testament physical circumcision, right? So in the Old Testament, there was circumcision was a surgical procedure that was performed with human hands. But he's saying now, in contrast to that, the circumcision of Christ is a circumcision made without hands. It's spiritual in nature. And notice this, Paul continues to go on to contrast this circumcision of Christ with the Old Testament physical circumcision. He says that Christ accomplishes this spiritual circumcision in the lives of his people. Look at that, chapter 2, verse 11, by putting off the body of flesh. 
Now again, this is clearly in contrast to Old Testament circumcision because the Old Testament physical circumcision, what happened in, in, in that act? It was a removal of the male foreskin, right? But here Paul says in contrast to that, the circumcision of Christ is far greater because it's a removal of the whole body of flesh, namely the sinful nature, right? So something greater is happening now. Christ, he, he removes that sinful nature. He changes us. He transforms us, not so that we're perfect in this life, but that we're changed, we're transformed. And so, so what is Paul referring to here? Paul is referring to the fact that in Jesus, the new covenant promise of all God's people being granted circumcised hearts has been fulfilled. That the promise that Moses made and Jeremiah made and Ezekiel made that will be given new hearts, circumcised hearts, a new spirit that loves the Lord and follows the Lord and believes in the Lord and trusts the promises of God, that promise has been realized because Christ has circumcised our hearts. Now, notice as well, and this is very important to see, that this circumcision of Christ Paul indicates is not does not represent potential but has been accomplished. So remember in the Old Testament circumcision when they circumcised the infants the intent was to be a symbol that one day hopefully that infant would believe and trust in the Lord Jesus and their hearts would be changed and transformed. That's not what Paul says is happening here. Paul says that these Colossian believers have received the circumcision of Christ. And then in verse 12, notice this, he links it. Let me just read the whole thing. He says, in him also you were circumcised. So they've experienced this circumcision of Christ. With a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him. So see, when one experiences the circumcision of Christ, it's not the possibility then that they might one day be buried with Christ and crucified in their sinful nature as they're united to Christ in faith, and that one day might possibly be raised with Christ by His Spirit to walk in newness of life. No, it's already happened. Past tense. If you receive the circumcision of Christ, you have been buried with Christ. You have been raised with Christ. You have been transformed. And now, let me ask you this question. There's only one group of people that's being baptized in these verses. And who is it? Who is being baptized in these verses? Is it infants that might one day possibly believe in Jesus? No, it is not. There's only one group of folks that are being baptized in these verses, and it is the Colossian believers, more to the point, those who have received the circumcision of Christ. Those whose hearts have been changed and transformed. Those whose hearts have come to believe and trust in the promises of God. Those whose hearts have been united to Christ by faith. And it should not surprise us then that the individuals who are baptized in these verses possess faith. Right? Look there in verse 12. He says having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So, so just do infants possess faith? They do not. 
The individuals who are being baptized here in these verses possess faith. They believe and trust in the promise of God that Jesus has died for their sins, that he's been raised from the dead, and they have been transformed by that reality. So let let me, I know that's a lot of theology, okay? There's a lot packed into these two verses, but let me just give you maybe my paraphrase of what the Apostle Paul is saying here, okay? Paul is saying, for those of you whose hearts have been circumcised with the circumcision of the Lord Jesus, for those of you whose hearts have been changed and transformed by the power of the gospel, For those of you who have come to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus that he died for your sins and that he was raised from the dead. For those of you who have been united to the Lord Jesus by faith, you were baptized. That's what Paul is saying. And so only those, I think from this passage and many others, I believe it is true that only those who have received the circumcision of the heart And as a result, have hearts transformed and changed by the gospel. It is only those who should be baptized. I believe this is the reason why we do not see any commands in the New Testament to baptize our infant children. In contrast to the Old Testament, where we see in Genesis chapter 17 very clear commands that we should circumcise, or they should have circumcised their infant children. We do not correspondingly see those types of commands in the New Testament regarding our infant children to be baptized. Furthermore, I think this is the reason why we do not see any examples of infants being baptized in the New Testament either. So, the fulfillment, I believe, of Old Testament circumcision in the New Testament is not baptism. The fulfillment of Old Testament circumcision is the circumcision of the heart by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus fulfilling the promise of God, the new covenant promise, that he would circumcise the hearts of all his people. And so then we ask this question, well, what role does physical circumcision play in our lives now as Christians? And it has been done away with. So you think about it, like in the Old Testament, you have animal sacrifices, right? And you have the priestly caste, and you have the temple, and you have the tabernacle, and all of these symbols and and things in the Old Testament that were pointing us to Jesus. Circumcision falls into that category. It was pointing us forward to something to come, and all of those things now, having been fulfilled in Christ, are done away with. So some Christian families may choose to have their young boys circumcised, and that is fine if you think that there are some health benefits for that or for various reasons. But as it relates to connecting us to God and his promises of salvation and redemption in Christ, it is utterly irrelevant. It has been completely abolished because it has been fulfilled in Christ. Christ has circumcised our hearts And given us new hearts in him that love him and want to follow him and obey him and trust him. So circumcision was an old sign for an old covenant. Baptism is a new sign for a new covenant. And baptism identifies those whose hearts have been changed, whose hearts have been circumcised by Christ, and who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. 
And let me just say, this is the reason why I believe baptism is such a joy and a celebration. Because when we baptize people, we are not indicating that possibly, maybe one day, God would change them and transform them and they would trust and believe in the Lord Jesus. We are celebrating the fact that it has happened. That the new covenant promises of God have been realized in this person's life. That their hearts have been changed and they have been united to Jesus in faith. And we say it as well when we baptize people. When I baptize folks here at Crawford Avenue, we, we use the language. It's Romans chapter 6. Buried with him in baptism, right? We put them under the water. It's happened. In Christ, your old person has died, been crucified, buried with him in Christ. That old man is dead. And you come out of the water raised in newness of life. The spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ has taken over this person's life. And they are new now. They are new creatures in the Lord Jesus. And so that's the significance, I believe, of baptism. And the reason why it is such a joy and a celebration. Now... Third, practical implications, practical implications. Now, here I've, I've laid this out in the format of question-answer. I've developed my own questions, and I'm going to answer them. And I have three questions, and we'll just hit each one of these briefly. First, one question that might naturally come out of a, a talk like this is, should I baptize my infant child? Should I baptize my infant child? Well, of course, I think you would uh, know at this point that based on my understandings of the scriptures and what we've seen in the scriptures this morning, I would say no. Now, does that mean if we do not baptize our infant children that we are denying that a child growing up in a Christian home enjoys certain privileges and benefits as a result of having Christian parents? No, absolutely not. We, although we do not, baptize our children as infants because we don't believe that the scriptures warrant that or teach that, we wholeheartedly believe that there are certain privileges and benefits that children experience if they grow up in a vibrant, genuine Christian home. And as parents, we need to recognize that we have a responsibility to make the most of the time that we have with our children in our homes, to teach them the scriptures, to pray with them, to pray for them and with them consistently, to live before them a genuine Christian life, and to give them many, many opportunities to trust in the Lord Jesus and to follow him. We also should encourage and demand, really, that our children grow up in the context of Christian community, in a loving community with other believers in the local church, where they will be taught the scriptures and pointed to the Lord Jesus. And Based on what we see in Scripture, we believe that it is both biblical and wise to withhold baptism from the day, for the day in which their hearts are genuinely transformed by the gospel and they are granted faith in the Lord Jesus. Second, if I don't baptize my child when they are an infant, when should my child be baptized? What is the appropriate age? If I don't baptize my child when they are an infant, when should my child be baptized? What is the appropriate age? Well, first and foremost, let me say that we believe that a child should be baptized when they trust in the Lord Jesus. That is the deciding, determinative, ultimate factor. They must believe in Christ and be changed by the gospel. Now, what is the appropriate age? 
Now, there, I cannot point you to chapter and verse. I think really here we get into a matter of wisdom, and we have to use wisdom in terms of how we handle this. Actually, our elders have written a position paper on this. If you're interested in learning more about it, you can access it through our website. We'd also be happy to provide that to you if you just want to come ask me or one of the other elders at our church. But let me just say this. There is a common practice among Baptists, both historically and present, uh, to encourage young children who have, are professing to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus. They may be four or five or seven years old. And we believe that God can save children at a very, very young age, genuinely save them. But there's been a tradition among Baptists that when a child very young, very early, is professing faith in Christ, to encourage that child to wait for a time uh, to be baptized in order to uh, allow time so that there would be uh, more ability on a greater sense of ability on the part of the parents to discern that faith in the child and to be able to affirm it, and then also for them to grow in their maturity and understanding of God's work of grace in their lives. Uh, there's many historical examples we could point to where Baptists have encouraged children to wait until they're even 16 or 18 years old before being baptized. Uh, we don't feel that it's necessary to wait that long, but we do think that it is wise uh, in many cases to allow for a time of waiting or delaying baptism for a time. Uh, we take this on a case-by-case basis, but generally we would say that the age of 12 or 13 years old is a good time to begin to think seriously about baptism. Now, personally, I know I was baptized younger than that. I imagine many in this room were as well. But I do think that the benefits of waiting outweigh uh, the benefits of not waiting. I'll say this by way of personal testimony as well. In the last several years, we have had here at Crawford Avenue a number of children in our church who, when they were much younger, made professions of faith in Christ. They may have been four or five or six. And I can remember some of those children, uh, their parents uh, brought them to me and we talked with them about uh, you know, what the Lord was doing in their lives. And their parents and I encouraged them and, and encouraged them that, listen, it doesn't matter how young you are. If you believe and trust in the Lord Jesus, he will save you. And we encourage them to continue to grow in their knowledge of the Lord and to continue to pursue Christ and to follow him. But then uh, in recent uh, months or years, they've kind of come of age, you might say. And now at 13 or 12 or 15 or 16, they are coming to stand before the congregation and share their testimony of how the Lord has saved them. And it is so encouraging as a pastor to see example after example of young persons stand before our congregation and give clear, powerful gospel testimonies of God's grace in their lives. And then to have the joy of baptizing them. And I think there's, there's just this sense when you hear them articulate clearly the gospel and what God has done in their lives, there's just this sense among us that we say, yes, they get it. That is a disciple of Jesus. And my friends, that is the intent of baptism, to identify the disciples of Jesus with him and with his people. Third, should I be baptized? Should I be baptized? Now, 
On this question, let me address, first of all, those who are among us who might be non-Christians. If you're here with us this morning and you're not a Christian, you might be thinking, well, what am I to do with this message? Well, I would say to you in the words of the Apostle Peter, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, let me make it clear. It is not baptism that saves you. It is only faith in the Lord Jesus that saves you. But, you know, the apostles, what we see in the New Testament is that these acts of believing and trusting in Jesus and being baptized were, were so connected to one another that they could almost speak of them interchangeably. So, so I think that for the apostles, it wouldn't have been odd if, if you were to ask a Christian, when did you become a Christian? And, and they were to say, you know, one answer they might give was, well, in 1996, I believed in the Lord Jesus and I became a Christian. They'd say, Amen. And then another answer might be, in 1996, I was baptized and I became a Christian. And they would say, amen. Do you see, those two things are so, like, when one believes, when one trusts in Christ, they just, the assumption is they're going to be baptized. They're almost interchangeable events. And the baptism actually signifies their faith. That they, they speak of them interchangeably. Now, if you were to press that, right, press into that, well, was it your baptism that saved you? Of course not, Right? If you get baptized and you have no faith, that's not going to do you a bit of good. It's only faith in Christ that saves us. But for those who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus, the assumption is, of course, they would follow Jesus in baptism. And so listen, my friends, if you're here this morning and you, you sense that the Lord is moving in your heart, you, you realize that you're a sinner, you, you sense your need for redemption and salvation, perhaps the Lord is transforming and changing your heart. And I would encourage you this morning, trust in the Lord Jesus. Trust in Him as your Savior and yield to Him as your Lord and follow Him in baptism. If you have questions about that, I would be happy to talk to you more about it. Now, there may be some here this morning who say, well, what if I'm a Christian and I was baptized as an infant? Should I be baptized now as a believer? I know this can be a sensitive subject, and I want to be sensitive, but I would say, as I've laid out my case this morning from Scripture as best I can, that yes, I would encourage you to be baptized. In fact, we have many folks here in our church that were uh, baptized as an infant in another church, but then when they became members here at Crawford Avenue, they were baptized as Christians. And I believe it is a wonderful opportunity to publicly profess your faith in Jesus. And I believe it is both biblical and right for each of us to follow Christ's command that all born-again believers be baptized. And so if you have questions about that, I would be happy to talk to you more about it. Then, there may be a group of people here this morning, and you say, I'm a Christian, but I've never been baptized. Not as an infant, not as a believer, never been baptized. Well, let me say this. If you're a child, and we dealt with this a little bit earlier, depending on your age and depending on your maturity, it might be wise to wait for a little while. 
I would encourage you first and foremost, trust in the Lord Jesus and he will save you. And grow in your love for the Lord Jesus and grow more and more in your understanding of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And then with the counsel of your parents, if they are Christians, and the counsel of your pastors, move wisely towards baptism and you will be grateful that you did. If you're older, if you're a youth or an adult, I want you to understand this. If you're professing to be a Christian this morning, you're a youth or you're an adult, you've never been baptized, understand this. Baptism is not an optional add-on for Christians. Consider this. When the Lord Jesus, before He went to His Father in heaven, before He ascended, He gave His disciples a, a commission, right? A command. He told them one thing from this point forward that they were specifically to give themselves to and devote themselves to. It's called the Great Commission. He said to them, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. In many ways, we could say that baptism is the Christian's first act of obedience, and if we are not willing to follow the Lord Jesus in that first act of obedience, then how will we observe all that He has commanded us to do? Baptism is commanded for all Christians, all followers and disciples of the Lord Jesus. And so I would encourage you this morning to publicly identify yourself with the Lord Jesus. Like, you know, place, uh, throw down your flag. Mark yourself, identify yourself as one who is a disciple and a follower of Jesus. Do that before God, before this church, before all people through the waters of baptism. I hope that we will all heed Christ's command to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. And Lord, we are especially grateful this morning for the new covenant promise that in the Lord Jesus, you change and transform our hearts. Oh God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that where there is a heart of stone that is hard and indifferent to you and does not want to obey you and is rebellious and does not believe your promises, that in your mercy and grace through the Lord Jesus, you grant a new heart, a heart that's set apart for you, a heart that believes, a heart that often fails but wants to follow and obey. Lord, we thank you for that gift. And then, Lord, we do thank you for the gift of baptism. And I pray, Father, for everyone here this morning, that they would understand their responsibility uh, before you uh, as it relates to your call of repentance and faith and baptism. What does it mean to follow the Lord Jesus in this area? So Lord, I pray that you would give discernment, that you would give wisdom, that you would give grace. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your word. We commit this time into your hands. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.